Hello, this is Bishop James Wall, and again, welcome to Crozier Cast. This is part three of a three-part series with Dr. Helen Free on the work of J.R.R. Tolkien. This week, Helen will take a look at some of the characters in Tolkien's work and go into a little a little deeper into uh, some of their development. So, as you have with the other two episodes, please enjoy. Take care. God bless. People, it seems, are so captivated by The Hobbit and the trilogy. And um, so if you were to say to somebody such as myself who saw the movies first mm -hmm. and you, you want to give a reading assignment, um, uh, what would you say, and why? Why would you? Why would you do that? Why would you encourage somebody to to do the, the well, read the I, books? I've given you a reading assignment. You have. I know. I already got that. Yeah. Yeah. The Einolindula, and it's it's uh, an Elvish name, uh, which is the creation of the world. But what I would say to them is, whenever you watch a movie, and, and our culture now is much more visual than a, than a reading society or a watching society. And I think that we have to be really careful because whenever we watch a movie, we are entering into the world that the director and the scriptwriter want to want to give to us. Sure. And so for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, Peter Jackson's movies, six hours, is that right? Goes on forever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> Especially his Hobbit. Oh. I could, that was oh, painful. that was one of the saddest remake or makes of a book ever. <laughs> that was just painful. It's like, could the Elvish, the, the, the chase scenes ever stop with Legolas and how to get the Hobbit anyways? I'm not even sure. But whenever you enter into the world of, of screen, you have, to, you have to know I'm entering into the world that someone else is creating for me. We're so passive when you watch something. Sure. Uh, you just sit there with your tub of popcorn and you know watch whatever you're watching. Um, and you don't then realize the effect that's having on your imagination. And so if you think about Peter Jackson's Middle Earth versus Tolkien's Middle Earth, there's a huge, huge difference between, between the two. And what I would say to someone who loves Peter Jackson's Middle Earth is you need to find out what the world is that Peter Jackson is, is malforming, um, the one that he, uh, that he partially uses but turns to his own... Uh, to his own will, in sure. the way that, that Melkor does. You think about I'm telling you about with the Einolindula. The way that Melkor turns the, the beautiful harmony into what he wants, the vision that he has. Um, and so I think that Peter Jackson and, uh, and the screenwriters, first and foremost, if they, if they understand Christianity, uh, they certainly don't embrace the world of Christianity. Um, and Middle Earth is fundamentally... A, uh, a Christian world order. It yes. is not Christian, but it is of a Christian world order. It Draws could not be except for the imagination of the author, which was, was completely orthodox um, and completely faithful to, uh, to Jesus Christ yes. and, and his gospel. But Peter Jackson does not understand that. And so I think what you see in the movies is this glorification of a friendship, which is a good thing. Sure. Um, but there is also the uh, the glorification of of the individual, um, and I think sadly the glorification of evil, which you do not have at all in uh, in the Lord of the Rings. And some of the, some of the key key differences 
that Jackson makes, I don't care that he switches out and gives more roles for women. That doesn't bother me anymore. You know, Arwen comes in instead of like Laura. There's the water scene that I remember reading it and I thought, you know, they're crossing over the water and they're going into, I can't remember. Rivendell? I think, okay. Yeah. And, and it's, it, you know, I think Gandalf plays a point. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I, and I thought, um, so I think Liv Tyler is the one in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that didn't happen. So I read it again. I thought, yeah. well, that didn't happen. Well, but you know, that is, that's a major change. It's not so, I don't care that Arwen takes place of Glorfindel. That's what happens in, sure. in the movie. But what I do care about is, for instance, in that scene that you're talking about, uh, Frodo's been mortally injured by one of the Black Riders yes. on, uh, on Weathertop. And they have to get to Rivendell for him to be healed. And the, the, the poison point of the, of the dagger is getting closer and closer to his heart. And he's becoming more and more of a wraith. So that he's entering more and more into the world of Black Riders. Um, in the movie, Frodo becomes uh, almost completely passed out, completely passive. He's not there at all, and it's it's Arwen, Liv Tyler, who you know, you know takes takes the reins of everything, and she herself takes the horse over the over the fords of Rivendell, and she's the one who challenges the Black Riders. Yes. Um, but in the book, and this is so important for what Tolkien is trying to show, the whole development of, you know, what is, what's the power of the individual versus the, the outside powers of, of evil, of, of nature, of fate. Um, and Frodo, even at this point of being almost in the world of the ring race, has enough power to take out his, his, sword, his dagger, Sting, and he says, uh, "You shall have neither the ring nor me." And you know, he he brandishes his dagger, yeah. uh, and it's very active. He's he's not a passive figure. He's he's roused his own will as much as he can, even though he's in a very diminished physical and also spiritual state. Still enough to resist these forces of evil. Um, but of course, the the leader of the Black Riders, you know, stretches out, and he says, "You know, you will come back to Mordor." And he was able to to break the or have him drop the, the dagger from his hand. And that's when Frodo, you know, slumps over. But it's at that moment that, you know, Frodo sees in his, in his sort of dying, dying self, he's almost dead, but he's not quite. That's when he sees the, the river itself coming. He remembers horses yes. and it washes the black riders away. Um, and so that's just one of many examples that, that Tolkien in his, in his work shows this amazing interplay of, fate, providence, and free will, that the will does as much as it is able to until it can do no more against the thing which is evil. Um, And if the will then cooperates with good as much as possible, then you see the the good forces, in this case it's it's Gandalf and uh, Elrond who have sent the the rivers flowing and flooding down to wash away the Black Riders and protect Frodo, um, but that's when you see the powers of providence come into play. And so in Tolkien's world, God never acts as, you know, what the Greeks call the deus ex machina, the, the God who just somehow plops out of the sky and takes the poor actor out of, out of the, the, the soup pot that he's put in, put in and puts him, puts him away. Uh, God doesn't act like that, either in our world or in Middle Earth. And so that's one of many scenes in which you see, uh, again, when I say God, I mean you know, the forces of providence um, interplaying with man's own choices for the good. But Peter Jackson takes Frodo out of it. Um, he's, he's just, he's 
he would go with the Black Riders if he could. And you see that happening over and over and over again in Peter Jackson's movie. Yeah. Um, people not resisting the ring. Um, you've got the awful, awful perversion of a beautiful character, Faramir, who in the movies um, basically just you know takes Frodo and Sam and takes them straight to his father. You know because it's this whole Jackson's trying to develop this whole you know second son rivalry with Boromir, and I just want to please my my papa type of um, type of story. When that's not it at all. I mean, what Faramir says in the book is he says you know even should I find this thing lying by the wayside, I would not touch it. Um, and so you have this incredibly noble character that, that Tolkien creates who's who's destroyed. He, he turned movie. into maybe my favorite character in the book. Oh, in the book. And in the movie, he's just kind of this weak, mamby-pambly, and it was just really sad. You know, he was, he was very virtuous in the book. And, and that was, for me, that was um, when I started discussing people with when I was reading it, I, that was probably the biggest disappointment for me. Yeah. Because I, lo I, I loved his character so much in the books. Well, the things that, that, and so I guess what I would urge a person who's only seen the movies to, to read the book is that you, if you like this world, you need to see it in its pure form because the things that Jackson does not understand, he doesn't understand the power of the good. He doesn't understand the nature of evil. Um, he doesn't understand, uh, this is not politically correct to say, but he doesn't understand uh, manhood. Um, proper, virtuous, strong uh, manhood. Yeah. And you see that with the perversion of Aragorn figure, the perversion of the, of the Faramir character, those, those two central ones. Um, because in the movie, Aragorn is constantly questioning, uh, am I a king? Am I just this person? Am I really worthy? Am I not? Uh, who am I? It was this constant like Hamlet type questions sure. of, of being which is very much of a, a modern man's dilemma of what's my purpose, what's my will, where am I going? Aragorn doesn't have that in the book. He knows who he is. He confirmed who he is. Uh, he acts uh, definitively um, and strongly, but he's not this macho man either. He's not just someone who uh, you know, knocks people over. He's, he's very thoughtful. He's very intelligent. He's very, say, sensitive but in the best manly sorts of way. Not he's, a, he's a true gentleman. He's a true gentleman, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Uh, but he's very sensitive to, to what are the needs of the present moment. Um, and, he, and then he discerns and he acts that way. Uh, so, so you never have any of those doubts in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Tolkien's Aragorn. The only time you see Aragorn doubting, I think it's a really powerful scene, is in the end of the Fellowship after, uh, Fro after Boromir tried to take the ring from Frodo. And Frodo has left, and uh, and they come across the dying Boromir who confesses what happened. Yes, it's such a powerful scene. I still cry. Um, but then Aragorn debates, "What do I do? You know, I was charged with protecting Frodo and the Ring because that that is the most important thing. Frodo and the Ring, because if uh, if Sauron gets the Ring, then then it's all over. All is lost. Uh, so he said that. So that's one choice. And, and again, this is a, a prime example of. of Tolkien's development of free will and free choice. So Aragorn is debating, do I take this path, which was the path of, of Frodo and Sam, and overtake them and protect them and get them to Mordor to destroy the ring? Or do I take the secondary path because poor Merry and Pippin have been captured by the orcs and they're being taken uh, to Saruman? So you've got these two opposite paths, one to, uh, one to uh, Mordor and the other to Isengard. Um, where, where Saruman lives, uh, and and Aragorn debates, what do I do? What do I do? 
Uh, and the choice he makes is a, is a beautiful example of how do we choose or how ought we to choose with, with a dilemma. It's a real dilemma. Sure. Uh, my, my calling seems like it ought to be with the people that are most important, the thing that is most important, the, the, the mission, the destruction of the ring. But Aragorn chooses for Merry and Pippin. He says, well, I will go with Merry and Pippin. And my heart now tells me that this is the way I need to follow. Um, but what he chooses is the people whose need is most present in the present moment. And that is Merry and Pippin, who are completely defense, defenseless to the orcs. Um, so he has to, to leave Frodo and Sam in the ring sort of in, in a trust, in trust to, to someone else now or something else now, or they themselves now will take this ring on to Mordor. But these defenseless hobbits who are, who are in the hands of the horrible orcs, they're the ones who are in need of immediate rescue. And so it's a, it's a really interesting moment of, of prudential choice. And he chooses for the thing that is most present, not the potential problems that will happen to Frodo and Sam, but he sees the immediate problems that are present with, with Merry and Pippin. And that's the choice. Uh, that's the choice that he makes. Um, but it's a man's choice. I mean, it's a, it's a manly choice uh, that, that he makes because in some sense, it's a, it's a choice of humility in which he has to give up being the, um, the protector of Frodo and thus also of the ring. And that's a huge sacrifice. It's a huge, it's a huge admission of, of his own powerlessness yes. in, in letting the ring go and trusting that it will be okay. Um, and choosing for these two uh, pointless, you could say, irritating hobbits. They they, they serve no purpose. They <laughs> they have no uh, they have no worth. You could say in regards to what they do, but they have great worth regarding who they are. And Tolkien always comes back to that. Yeah, they're not the central part of the mission. No, no. If they were killed, and the ring survived, n no worries because sure. the ring survived. But Tolkien's Tolkien's whole view is is not ever to objectify anyone. Um, Sure, Merry and Pippin apparently don't serve a quote-unquote purpose. Um, they're just baggage. Even they themselves say they're baggage. <laughs> um, but they're not baggage. And that's really what Tolkien um, wants, to, uh, wants to show and wants to uh, have us see in, in his old world. But never like on purpose. I don't think Tolkien ever was thinking, oh, I'm going to write this in order that we see that all humans have, uh, have, have a worth in, of themselves. It's just simply what happens as a proper development from a proper, a proper world order. It'd be interesting to see, as you mentioned, the um, the two friends, his two close friends who died on the same day, and um, if somehow that impacted uh, his his uh, mm -hmm. writing in Aragon going to help Merry and Pippin, if you know it was this longing of, of helping his, his two friends who, yeah. who died on in in uh, World War One on the same day. Yeah, I, I so so as we kind of uh, come to a close, and um, I'm Helen. I'm so happy that I, I was able to uh, talk you into coming. And, and uh, um, between John and you, I think you've taken my my podcast to a whole new level, which is awesome. Which puts a lot of pressure on me in the future. But um, so grateful that you came and shared your expertise and and uh, shared your love of the of the work of Tolkien. And um, and it was we just know as a great man of faith, great mm -hmm. man of faith, and I think for me that's what I always come back to. He was just a he was a wonderful, wonderful, faithful Catholic, and and that could 
you can see all that spill over in his, in his writings in a, in a beautiful way. So one final thought, what would be your one final thought on, on Tolkien? My one final thought is that if you love Tolkien and his work, what you really should look to are his letters. Um, many people don't read his letters, but he has, he has amazing writings in which he really talks about uh, elements of the faith or even elements of, of relationships and of marriage. Um, I find his letters to one of his sons particularly moving, Michael. I think it was Michael Tolkien. I could, could be getting that wrong. Uh, and it seems to be with Michael that he really shares uh, very personal details of both his his views of, of marriage and relationship, um, but also of the Eucharist itself. There's a, a meme going around the internet that has a quotation from Tolkien regarding the Eucharist, where he says it's you know, the one area of... of uh, romance and sacrifice and beauty. But if you read the whole of that letter, it's a letter written to Michael regarding his own flagging faith um, and his own failing faith. And it seemed also probably to do with a, a relationship with a woman that had failed or was breaking up. I'm not sure what the, what the biographical details sure. would be. But it's a very beautiful letter. And that's when he says that for him, the, one of the great sacrifices was in... Uh, in seeing some of the changes that were happening in the church uh, in the late 60s, um, uh, Vatican II, um, and, and he talks about like, women in, in pants, um, and, and he has to get over <laughs> women in pants in the church and the ugly language and ugly everything. But he said everything has to do with the Eucharist, and uh, he has just a beautiful reflection on the power of the Eucharist and uh, spending time before before the Blessed Sacrament. So that would be my final my final thought for for other people that want to delve deeper into Tolkien as a is in some sense of a life guide is you need also to read the letters to understand fully the faith from which you know Tolkien writes and, yes. and has his his whole life and that the the whole of Middle Earth is is imbued with. Wonderful, thank you, thank you. I'm thank you, Bishop. Paul. So I think I'm getting a second. Uh, reading assignment, I take it from the from the letters, the letters as well. Yes. I like that. So what we're going to do is we we normally do we'll put uh, the things that uh, that uh, Helen cites. We'll we'll put them in our show notes, which will be really exciting. And um, Helen, thanks for being here and sharing you your love show. for Tolkien and and his good work. And uh, as you said, a man of great Catholic faith. And uh, I know that Helen's uh, words are going to inspire you to go deeper into Tolkien's uh, work. So. Thank you, and uh, God bless you, and thank you, thanks again for tuning in uh, to Crozier Cast. God bless.